0: Welcome to the Chris Wallace Chronicles. When I was working at NBC doing on-air promotion, the news department asked me to do a series of promos on Liz Trotta. She was a new reporter they wanted to introduce to the public. I went out with her and her crew, and whenever there was a quiet moment, I'd shoot footage for my promos. On this particular day, she covered the arrival of a boatload of African animals. The press release called it a modern-day Noah's Ark. The guy who'd captured the animals was Don Hunt. This turned out to be a remarkable coincidence. We were just about to air a syndicated kids' show titled Bwana Don in Jungle Law. It was the same guy. I asked him if he'd like to come in and do some voiceover promos for his show. The next day, he came to my office. While we were talking, I said I'd always been curious about Africa. Before long, we were talking about co-producing a syndicated series called Capture, And the next thing you know, he invited me to come to Kenya. He insisted there would never be a better time to see the abundance of game than now. I arrived in Nairobi in February 1966. The day I arrived, Don had everything organized so we could get an early start to Nanyuki the next morning. We stopped at a government office for permits, a tailor shop to get me fitted for safari gear, a compulsory stop or two, Or three, at the Thorn Tree in the New Stanley Hotel. That was the meeting place in Nairobi. Don knew everyone. The next morning I had that moment of where am I when I woke up. I was in Africa. And as soon as we were out of Nairobi, we were in the African bush. Paved roads were a luxury. We were on dirt tracks, as wide as a two lane road, but still dirt tracks. I was too overwhelmed to take much in, except what I can only describe as the African aroma. It was subtle or strong depending on where you were, but it was always there, everywhere. It wasn't unpleasant. It was just identifiable, unique. I'd still know it anywhere. A while later, we arrived at the Game Warden's residence in Nanyuki. It looked like a Hollywood set director got there right before we did. Long snake skins were hanging on the wall. Other animal skins, gazelles of all varieties, sometimes a leopard or a cheetah skin, would be dropped over well-worn furniture. Zebra skin rugs on the floor. The next morning at six, I was awakened with a pot of tea. The game warden had received a call from a farmer that buffalo were destroying his maize. If you're like me, you had to learn that maize is corn. Don and I went along. They asked me if I could shoot and gave me a rifle. A loaded, high-powered rifle. I'd arrived in Kenya two days before. Now I was out in the African bush with a high-powered rifle in my hands looking for Cape Buffalo in somebody's cornfield. It was an out-of-body experience. On the way there, I saw my first wild game. Thompsons and Grants gazelles, impala, ostriches, giraffe, zebra, all in countless numbers, just living their lives there like it was no big deal. And here, I want to read you the notes I made right afterwards to give you an idea of what that buffalo hunt was like. Quote, First you find a track and then begin following it. The tracks begin to appear fresher. Then you determine that there are several animals, and one is of tremendous size. The dogs begin to get excited. Without anyone saying so, the pace quickens. You're traveling through thorn bush that scratches your arms and legs, but you don't notice a sting. The tracks are very fresh now, and everyone falls silent, making hand motions to one another, indicating the buffalo's direction. There'll be some fresh droppings, and maybe you'll notice a thorn that has some fresh blood on it. As the party divides, the separate numbers whistle to keep the others informed of their location. You break into a trot and crash through the bush as if you were the animal being pursued, and the adrenaline pumps. Unquote. Fortunately for the buffalo, we never caught up with them. They made it out the other side of the maize field unscathed. That afternoon, we went to the Mount Kenya Safari Club for a beer. The actor William Holden and another yank, Ray Ryan, bought the club and turned it into a flashy resort. Because I was a friend of Don's, I was given a temporary membership. Before my visit to Kenya was over, I'd stayed there a few times. I googled it recently and saw that it's now owned by a hotel group, and the rooms went for between 323 and $2,278 a night. It was a lot cheaper in 1966. While we were in Nanyuki, there was a new adventure in the bush every day. One afternoon, the game warden got a call from a farmer that a 17-foot bull giraffe was dead on his property, and there didn't seem to be any cause of death. Just this big, dead animal. If it was disease, the farmer could have a problem. Eventually, it was determined that the animal had gotten its neck caught in a small tree somehow and choked itself to death. The local Turkana people were waiting for the verdict. Once it was delivered, they lost no time butchering that giraffe into huge chunks so everyone could have some fresh meat. The only thing left was a stomach, filled with semi-digested grass. While we were on that property, they decided they wanted to see if I could shoot. They needed meat for the dog, so out we went. Full disclosure, I'd hunted with my older brother in Ohio as a teenager, never hit anything, and didn't care. But something happens to a guy when he's in Africa, at least it did to me. First, you're with all these other guys with guns who live in Africa. You can't help but feel your manhood is being tested. Testosterone rages through you. I'd learned to shoot in the Army, so I knew what I was doing. I'm not at all proud of killing those animals, but the challenge was more than I could resist. I can only put it down to a... a guy thing. Another time, a lion had been killing someone's cattle and was suspected of hanging around two leopard baits that had been placed in a forest. Away we went to check this out. One bait was a zebra that had been wired in place so whatever animal was feeding on it wouldn't be able to drag it away. When we got there, the zebra was virtually intact. Only the head had been chewed on. But as we approached, there was this deafening buzz. As we got closer, about 80 trillion flies whooshed up around that carcass. My estimate could be off. Could have been more. You can't imagine. The other bait was hanging from a high branch of a tree. Leopards often drag a carcass up into a tree to keep other predators away. There was evidence that a lion had, in fact, tried to climb the tree. There are parts of Africa where lions will climb trees, but in Nanyuki, it's uncommon. The game warden and his assistants examined the tree and noticed what could only be lion claw marks in the bark. They concluded that the lion had tried to get at that bait, but probably didn't like the height and hustled back down. We spent that afternoon at the Mount Kenya Safari Club, had lunch, played bowls on their green, When I was going for a swim, someone warned me to watch out for eagle shit. There was an eagle that lived at the club and often perched at a spot where it could bomb unsuspecting guests on their way to the pool. African wildlife, right? Next day, we set off for Isiolo in the northern frontier district, known as the NFD. We had to travel through what was called Shifta country. These were ethnic Somalis in the NFD who wanted to secede from Kenya and become a part of Somalia to the north. They were called Shifta, which means bandit in Somali, and they were locked in a war of secession. The game warden here in Isiolo lived rougher than the one in Nanyuki. We slept on cots on the veranda, always a weapon within reach. All game wardens had arsenals, and the Shifta knew it. They had attacked this one several times already. It was truly no bullshit dangerous. Also, the climate in the NFD was hotter and closer. More insects, more malarial mosquitoes, and amazingly, even more game, if you can believe that. Herds of buffalo passed within meters of the veranda, plus wild dogs, rhinos, gazelles, of course, harder beasts, baboons, waterbuck, giraffe, ostriches, Huge numbers of free-roaming African animals in their natural habitat. It was thrilling. Spectacular. Just like Nanyuki, Isiolo was a new adventure every day. Our first day, the game warden got a report of a rogue lion in the vicinity. Now, I realize this can sound dramatic or even exaggerated, so before I go on with this story, I want you to know that after I left Isiolo, a rogue lion did go into town, and killed two young girls. Now, back to this rogue lion. Our plan was to set a bait and see if we could take care of the problem. Don shot a zebra for bait. No sooner had the zebra been brought down than I noticed shadows flashing by on the ground. I looked up to see, and this is not hyperbole, at least 500 vultures circling at varying heights above us. There were already more in the trees nearby, watching, waiting. As we dragged the zebra to an open area where we'd tie it down, many of them swooped down to where we had just been to see if there were any scraps. An advanced scout was already watching from a tree when we secured the zebra. We covered it with a huge pile of thorn bushes. They would discourage the vultures, but not a hungry lion. Then we smoothed the ground around it so whatever came would leave tracks. The next day we went back to the lion bait. The only footprints were made by a human. The branches were thrown to the side, and there was nothing left but a zebra skeleton. Conclusion, someone came by, took whatever meat he could carry, and left the rest for the big birds. Another afternoon, we drove out to a safari camp to pay a visit to a professional hunter. This was the roughest terrain of all I'd seen. There was no real track, just the faintest tire marks that only the game warden was able to see from out the top of the four-wheel drive. We arrived just after the hunter's client had killed a lion. The only lions I'd ever seen were on the MGM logo and one in a cage at the Columbus Zoo. This was a large male. He weighed around 400 pounds. His head was massive. His mane was dark brown and thick and coarse. He looked mean and had a don't-fuck-with-me sneer on his lips, even in death. One of his forepaws had a hole in it, indicating that he'd had his share of battles. He had survived everything but a bullet. This was one of the most impressive sights I had ever and have ever seen. We were invited to stay for dinner. Afterwards, I wandered back to the lion. By now, the Skinners had done their work, and I was able to see the muscle structure of this magnificent cat. It was an anatomy lesson. As you'd expect there was no fat visible anywhere his shoulders were hugely muscled what I would identify as the biceps on his forelegs housed bulging veins and suggested enormous strength I imagined him running alongside a gazelle and bringing it down with one mighty swipe This animal was as beautiful and impressive without skin as it had been with it It was dark when we began our journey back to Isiolo Normally, all you'd hear out here at night would be the occasional woof of a lion on a kill or the cackle of hyenas, and the only light would be the moon. We added the roar of a car motor and headlights. This was shift to country. While the game warden guided us back, Don and I sat there armed to the teeth. We each had a 12-gauge shotgun. I had a 300 Magnum rifle. Don had a 375. I had a 38 caliber pistol. He had a 9 millimeter All were loaded and ready. Like I said, this was no bullshit dangerous. The rains came, so there wasn't much reason to stay in Isiolo any longer. We went back to Nairobi, and I checked into the new Stanley Hotel. Before I went to Africa, I'd read most of the books about the Victorian explorers who searched for the source of the White Nile. Don and Iris had business to take care of, So I decided I'd make a safari of my own to Uganda. I wanted to check out where those explorers had some of their thrilling adventures and suffered such terrible hardships. Much of it was now Murchison Falls National Park. I found a tour that looked good and bought a ticket for a late afternoon flight to Entebbe. On arrival, I went directly to the Lake Victoria Hotel, only to find out that the tour I wanted left from the Grand Hotel in Kampala, So I had to reboard a minivan to the airport and hope I got there before the last one left for Kampala. This driver managed to intercept the van to Kampala, and I just jumped from one to the other. By now it was night. There was only one other passenger in the van. You know, when you don't know where you're going, it always seems like it takes forever. That's the way it was on this ride. And the other passenger kept turning around and looking at me from the front seat. He didn't say anything, just looked. I started to panic when he said something to the driver, and he pulled off the main road onto a dodgy-looking side street. I had a hunting knife in my bag and quietly eased it out. All of a sudden, the van stops, and they get out either side of the front and circle toward the back. I couldn't keep my eye on both of them, and I could feel the sweat running down my neck. The driver opened the back of the van, took the man's suitcase out, and handed it to him. The man gave him a tip, and the driver drove me to the Grand Hotel. I sat there imagining a knife fight for my life, and all I was doing was dropping off the other passenger. And the comedy of errors wasn't over yet. When I got to the Grand Hotel in Kampala, they informed me that yes, there was still room on the tour that left for Murchison Falls day after tomorrow, but no, I couldn't stay there because they didn't have any rooms left. Even if I booked ahead, I'd have booked the wrong hotel in the wrong city. So I just stood there looking at this desk clerk. He said I should be able to get a room at the Speak Hotel across the street. I thanked him, picked up my bag, and started toward the front door. Wait, sir. Cynical me thought right. Suddenly found a room, more expensive, hotel hustle. He said, we'll have one of our staff walk with you. Walk with me? What for? It's just across the street, right? It is not safe to be on the street alone at night, sir. Just to go across the street? Yes, sir. So one of the porters walked me across the street and I checked into the Speak Hotel. Tea was brought to my room at 7 a.m. I went down for breakfast and then decided to have a look around Kampala. I ended up at a place where I could people watch and read the papers. Kampala was far less cosmopolitan than Nairobi. Hardly a city, more like a country town regular folks going about their business. But every once in a while, there was a treat. Beautiful African women, all ages and sizes, dressed in brilliant, vibrant colors, floated down the street as smooth as silk with these huge loads balanced on their heads. Huge loads. It was like performance art. You couldn't hear the music, but you could sure see the rhythm. It was hypnotic. There was only one other person in this cafe, a French woman, so we started talking. She confirmed how dangerous it was here, that highwaymen ambushed cars by rolling large logs into the road and robbing the passengers when they had to stop. She repeated the warning to never be alone on the streets after dark. Never. My room at the Speak Hotel had a balcony, and there was an open area like a park in front of me. It was twilight. From way over on my left, I noticed this what looked like a thin black ribbon, start to climb into the sky. As it continued across the sky in front of me, the ribbon got thicker and wider and denser and made a sound like nothing I'd ever heard before. A loud, high-pitched, nearly deafening shriek. It was an endless number of bats that had come out of some place over on my left, continued without any spaces or gaps, all the way over to my right, to wherever they were headed. If I hadn't seen it, I wouldn't have believed it. The sky was black with them. I wouldn't even begin to estimate how many there were. I could be off by thousands, maybe millions. It was raining when our group boarded two minibuses for Murchison Falls. By the time we stopped in Masindi for lunch, the clouds had burned away and the temperature was hot. The vegetation was more lush here and the colors more vivid. By now, in my mind at least, I was a veteran of the African bush stuck with all these civilians. I felt smug. I felt smugger when one of the ladies got excited and pointed to a warthog out the window and said, Look, there's a rhino! As soon as we got to the park, we saw enormous elephant herds, sometimes as many as 50 in a group dotted around as far as you could see in all directions. They were ubiquitous. Traffic signs indicated that elephants had the right of way. This park was a haven for thousands of African elephants. We were taken to the tent camp that was to be our home for the night. Next morning, tea was brought to my tent at 7, and after breakfast, we all boarded our vans and were taken to where the Victoria Nile begins its descent into Lake Albert. It passes through a series of rapids, and through a narrow opening, that cascades 400 feet to become Murchison Falls, the most powerful waterfall in the world. 11,000 feet per second of water passes through that opening and crashes down into Lake Albert. Then we went down to Lake Albert and boarded an open boat for the reverse angle called Devil's Cauldron, where the cascading water lands. After that, we putt-putted around Lake Albert and saw hundreds of crocodiles, some basking on the shore with their mouths wide open, some floating around the lake. And next to the shore, we saw a bunch of baby crocs no more than four or five inches long. They just crawled out of their leathery shells in the sand. The mother croc surfaced from time to time to make sure her babies weren't in danger. There were also countless numbers of hippos along the shoreline and in the lake. Unless you experience hippos in their natural environment, you wouldn't know their bathroom habits. Their little tails flutter back and forth while they emit this huge froth of shit into the water. There were a lot of hippos there. The fragrance lingers. Indefinitely. Finally, our little boat chugged back to the landing. Later, we boarded our minivans for the return trip to Kampala. Going to Murchison Falls had been a good call. The elephants alone would have been worth it. That wasn't the end of my adventures in Africa. I'll just give you a couple of headlines. I went to Amboseli National Park that spans the Kenya-Tanzania border. In the morning, I looked out at Mount Kilimanjaro from my veranda and could see it before the clouds obscured its summit. That was a stunning sight. And the guy I was with decided to taunt a huge rhino from our four-wheel drive, laughing his stupid ass off, until the rhino turned directly toward us and lowered its head, pointing its two-foot horn in our direction, and started to charge. That was a thrill I didn't need. And I went back up to Nanyuki for a few days before catching a flight to New York. As soon as I got back, I joined the World Wildlife Federation and the East African Wildlife Society. I had an awakening about wildlife that became a passion. After I was back for a while, I read a report that wildlife scientists were warning about the very elephants I'd seen at Murchison Falls. They had been monitoring the animals for a few years and concluded that the habitat could no longer sustain such large numbers. The herds continued to grow in size, but the habitat obviously hadn't. If the herds weren't culled to more sustainable numbers, they'd destroy the habitat by eating all the vegetation and end up starving. The warning wasn't heeded. By the 80s, the elephant population at Murchison Falls had gone from 14,000 to 200, many having starved to death. One day in the early 70s, I got a call from a media company. Every so often, they'd give me a freelance writing assignment or a voiceover gig. On this occasion, the media company wanted to talk to me about a wildlife film. They told me it was to be sponsored by the American fur industry. Like every progressive, my knee-jerk reaction was I wouldn't go near it with a 10-foot pole. They said they weren't expecting a puff piece, that I could do whatever I wanted, and asked me to do some research before saying no. They gave me a desk and a phone and left me alone. I began calling wildlife scientists all over the United States. One would recommend another until I'd covered virtually every region and talked to a ton of wildlife scientists. My view softened a little. The media company said they'd send me around the country to talk to these people face-to-face. I went to upstate New York, Alabama, Mississippi, Louisiana, Iowa, Colorado, Utah, California. Each region had its own wildlife problems, from rats to alligators to beaver to pheasants to nutria to wild horses to coyotes. Little by little, I began to see that the problem wasn't the fur industry. It was much, much bigger. It was finding a balance between what man wants and what animals need just like the elephants at Murchison Falls. We needed to follow the science. Now I met with a representative of the fur industry. I agreed to do the film on one condition, that we say up front that the fur industry was paying for it. I knew what I wanted to say, and it had to start with the truth. We began shooting a couple of weeks later. I ended up writing, narrating, and scoring the film I titled In the Balance. I was happy with it, The media company was happy with it, and the fur industry was relieved that no one threw blood on me. Sometime later, the media company sent me a certificate. In the Balance had won the Silver Award at the 1972 New York International Film and Television Festival. It was also singled out by the U.S. Department of Interior as one of the best wildlife films they'd seen. That was 50 years ago. The fundamental principles ensuring healthy animal populations are the fundamental principles that we still need to heed today, multiplied by the threat to global plant life and the Earth's atmosphere. All life is interconnected. Science has always said the same thing. Human greed and stupidity have always said something else. Some people care about tomorrow, some don't. But if we don't find a balance pretty soon... It ain't going to matter. I'm Chris Wallace. If you want to, you can see In the Balance on my website, com.